has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. So thanks for joining, I guess, us again. An anonymous caller and I and their story about addiction. Let's do it. Addicts in the dark. Hi, Nick. Hey, man. How are you doing? Give me a little background on on what this is all for and what your uh, what your um, just what this is all about. I know it's a podcast and and why you're doing it. What is? Can you can you do that? Yeah, man. The floor is pretty much yours. It's a chance to anonymously tell me your story about addiction. I just ask that you don't give me your real name or at any point mention your exact location, yeah. just so we yeah, can yeah. keep you anonymous. You know, addiction is a is a uh, medical issue, and once it's looked at as a medical issue and treated medically and not criminally, then um, then it's, it's there's going to be a change. You know that um, you know you look at Portugal. Um, I mean, Oregon up here we just passed um, the decriminalization of all drugs this past October. I don't know if you know if you knew that. You're not ruining somebody's life for a possession of uh, of a of a small amount of. Uh, illicit drugs um, because, you know, you get a, you get caught with a little bit of heroin or a little bit of uh, cocaine and you get a felony and which is for personal use, your life is pretty much over. I mean, you, you can't get housing, you can't get a job. Now, all of a sudden you're in, you're in the world, whether you, you, you have to resort back to the, uh, to that, that lifestyle that whether it be the sale or production or, or distribution of, of illicit drugs just to support yourself. Um, just to get, you know, housing and just to house yourself. And it's, uh, it's the amount of money that's spent on the war on drugs is just, uh, silly. And you can take those, that money and put it into other resources and treating addiction, um, as a medical issue. Um, and there can be some, some changes. You'd also think that if addiction were looked at as a medical issue, the drugs themselves would be regulated, which would mean the supply wouldn't be tainted or would be less tainted. Absolutely. And then there would likely be less overdoses. You were talking before about reallocating resources. There would be less money spent on paramedics, hospital visits, detox treatments, and so on. Yeah. I mean, they, they give out fentanyl test strips at the needle exchanges here in Portland now. You know, um, they put fentanyl in, in everything now. Everything that comes across the border from Mexico, which is, you know, your methamphetamines, your heroin, everything has fentanyl in it. And that is such a, a strong drug. I mean, people are just, they're ODing left and right. And the amount of death, I mean, look at America. This, it was a couple of years ago. is the number one cause of death in the United States. And it's the pharmaceutical. You know, first, people, they get hooked on oxys. They get hooked on, you know, the, 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 um, those opiates. Uh, based drugs, and then they get takes five days for the human body to get to get hooked on oxycodone or oxycontin, and then so they get taken off this prescription. They no longer have the prescription readily available to their doctor. And what do they do? They're addicted, so they they go to they go to the street drug, they go to the heroin, and it's um, or whatever other opiate they can find on the streets. And it's not good product. You know, um, you don't people don't overdose on, on good, on, on good, pure heroin, you know, they overdose because they're doing 
the same amount of good pure heroin that they would do, but there's fentanyl thrown in there. And just to be clear, fentanyl can safely be administered into drugs. You just don't always have Walter White mixing your drugs. You have some dude who failed grade 10 chemistry who fucks it up. That's it. And accidentally kills someone. It's not because anyone wants to kill their customer. It's because they don't have the supplies to make the pure stuff anymore. Right. And, and if you, if you, on the flip side, if you're regulating and taxing, those drugs, the taxpayers no longer paying for all those services that you just stated because the tax revenue that is generated from the sale of those drugs, that pays for those services. So um, it's a complete flip. And, and uh, it just seems like the, the conservative, um, you know, the, the conservative people of this world really just uh, just don't don't want to hear that. I don't know why that is. Um, Maybe you do. I don't know. What is your, what is your thought? Uh, I don't know either, but I don't want to talk politics. I want to talk about you. Let me hear about your addiction. Oh, you know, I started drinking alcohol when I was, you know, in younger and in high school and, um, right out of high school when I was 18, I went in the U S army for six years. And I think that was one thing that really drove my alcohol consumption. You're not, you know, you can't do any drugs while you're in the military except for alcohol. And, uh, that's, you know, that's something that, uh, the, the rich, you know, the elitists have been doing for thousands of years to the, to, you know, get, get the guy drunk and get him to go out and fight. I mean, you look back on the early days, the colonial days or whatever, and even the civil war, I mean, you had to be drunk to, to sit there and, and stand 60 yards from somebody and, and point uh, a weapon that is shooting this, you know, one pound ball at you. That you, I mean, you know, you had to be drunk to, to, to get up there and do that because nobody in their right mind, sober mind would do that. So, you know, they, they bred that in the military. They, they um, didn't have a problem with, with you getting wasted every single night, which I did. I can say almost every single uh, night. <laughs> I mean, I that was what we would do. We'd get off work and, and you, you, you start drinking. And then that just continued on after I got out of the military, went to college right out of the military. Um, I was in North Carolina and uh, living in Charlotte. And I bartended to, uh, to help pay for school. And, um, you know, that, that bar scene has a lot of, uh, you know, nightlife has a lot of cocaine in it. And I'd never tried cocaine until I was, I think 26 or 27 years old. And then I got into, got in pretty heavy into cocaine for about 10 years when I was in Charlotte. You know, that is a socially, it's funny, that's a socially accepted drug. I don't know why that is. Um, you look at, you know, you look at heroin or methamphetamine, it's very, that is very like non-socially accepted. But for some reason in the United States, cocaine is. Yeah, it's interesting how drugs get tiered differently. Like you said, if you're at a party, you're more likely to find cocaine as opposed to crack. Absolutely. At that same party, you're more likely to find MDMA as opposed to meth, as if one's more posh than the other. Well, one kind of is more posh than the other because it's more expensive. Right. And a city like that, with that amount of money, is going to have a lot of that type of drug. And everybody did it. Everybody I knew. Everybody from bankers to bartenders to, to, to athletes. I mean, you had uh, professional athletes there and numerous times I'd, I'd be um, at parties where there would be uh, professional athletes or former professional athletes 
you know, football players and stuff. That would be there, and you know, everybody would be doing lines with cocaine. So they, yeah, that was just. I I, I left Charlotte um, about. 15 years ago, um, one of the reasons why I left was to uh, get away from that whole scene. I moved to Colorado, worked at a ski resort there for a season or so, about a year. You know, uh, what I realized, of course, when I got out to Colorado and there was just as much cocaine, I mean, I'm in the Vail Valley of Colorado, one of the most expensive places in, in the United States to live. And uh, once again, a lot of cocaine there because of the money there. And, you know, I thought I would be escaping that. I wasn't escaping that. And it just um, just was there, continued on with that lifestyle. Um, and then uh, since then, I've, I've moved out to uh, Portland. Um, I stopped doing cocaine about 10 years ago um, when I moved out here. The ironic thing that ended my cocaine use was LSD. And uh, psychedelic means healing of the mind. And... Um, what had happened was hanging out with some people and I ended up coming across uh, these kids. I mean, they were kids too. They were like 19 year old kids that had this LSD and it was incredibly good stuff to where I ended up buying a whole sheet for myself and which is a hundred hits. And I was probably eating, you know, one to two hits of LSD three to five nights a week. And I mean, I was going out to like house parties. I was functioning for that. And it was so good that you didn't want anything else. You didn't want alcohol. You didn't want cocaine. You wanted nothing else. And, um, you know, I just, that, when I had three, four months away of doing that and away from cocaine, not thinking about that, it was very easy uh, to get away from. Yeah, see, that's the thing. These drugs weren't, most of them weren't originally made just to get us high. They were made for therapeutic purposes, therapeutic testing. So... I guess it was some form of therapy for you. So does that mean you've been clean since? No, I mean, that got me, that got me, uh, I, I haven't, I've probably done in the past 10 years, I've probably done cocaine, um, three or four times. And then, um, probably about six or seven years ago, seven years ago, I ended up down in, um, Humboldt County, California, living in a camper, um, down at this property and growing cannabis and I would party up a lot and that's when I ended up getting into um, methamphetamines just because I ended up with some people one night and I thought it was cocaine and they're like who does cocaine anymore I'm like huh they're like so that that started the whole uh, about six years ago um, introduction to me in the in the methamphetamines and and that's in that in that world, most people, almost everybody I know, they started doing this drug when they, methamphetamines, when they were like anywhere from 13 to, you know, 18 years old and have been doing it ever since. I mean, I'm going to be 48 in a couple of weeks. I don't think I know anybody in this lifestyle that started at age 40, a couple of people like I did, you know, or 42. And I've continued to um, be a daily user of uh, methamphetamines. I have been through treatment. I stopped for about a year, um, three years ago. Got in trouble with the law and, uh, you know, was arrested, uh, convicted uh, of uh, a weapons charge along with um, 
I did have some drug charges. Those were dismissed with a, a plea bargain. I was put on three years uh, supervised probation, and um, I went through uh, treatment through a VA facility um, in Southern Oregon, which um, was a great treatment program. Stayed clean for about a year after that, and then just um, ended up back in the lifestyle again. Continue. I'm off probation now, but I continued that uh, daily methamphetamine use. Um, I smoke a little bit of cannabis as well. Um, I've tried every, just about every drug, uh, including heroin. It, heroin was never really my thing. I've tried it numerous times. It just, it just didn't do it for me. You know, I, I feel like uh, I've been called uh, a functioning addict, which is kind of the, I've learned, is the worst time because I've basically been using every day for my entire life for the past 30, 33 years of my life because I can rationalize and justify my drug use because I pay my bills. Um, I go to work. I'm self-employed. Uh, I'm productive. Um, and I, and, you know, I'm an intermediate um, methamphetamine user as well. So I don't, I mean, and that's a daily thing for me. So do you think, because I'm interested in the functionality aspect of it, do you think that because you're an intravenous meth user, it's a little bit easier for you to function because it wears on your body, but it wears on your body a little bit differently than if you were to smoke it? You know, that, that's, uh, that, is a, that is the cleanest way, they say, to, um, to use any type of, of substance. It does the least damage on your body. It does, you know, it, it really, methamphetamines as a whole is it just really kills your respiratory system. I mean, you, you feel it. Um, that's one spot that, they, that you feel it. But, and it also, you know, your, your veins go away after, after a while. I mean, now after six or so years of, of, of doing it like this, some days I just can't even get a vein. Um, and that, that's probably the, is a extremely frustrating thing. I know other people who have been doing it for way longer than me that, you know, had to give it up um, because they can't. They can't. There's just no way that they can get a, a vein anymore. Um, I wonder if, sorry, back to the functionality thing for a sec, maybe the functionality has to do with the nature of meth itself. You would do a better job of describing it than I, but being on meth is kind of like you can do anything you want. Right. You probably won't finish whatever the fuck you're doing, but you can That's start it. anything you want. It's just like you said, you're going to have 20 projects going on at once. Are you, you going to finish one? And a, a lot of times you, you think you're getting more accomplished, but because you're so scattered and you've got 20 different projects going on, you're actually not getting more, more accomplished. I've definitely learned that. Um, to support my habit, I sell methamph- methamphetamines as well on a very small scale, um, but it's just to support my habit so I don't have to pay for it. So people over my house and everybody always wants to smoke or do this because I'll smoke it as well. And I don't even, mine's an end of the day type, if, if you will, type of thing. When I use intravenously, I'm done my work for the day. You know, I take my shower and I'm, I'm, I'm done. Like that's, that's it. I'm not, cause I know I'm not really going to function after I do this shot, you know? So what you're saying is for you, when you do smoke meth, that's actually more manageable for you than using it intravenously. I, I don't even really think it, it, um, you know, the quality of product nowadays. And just because I've been doing it for a while, I don't even know if I feel like I feel anything from smoking it. To be honest with you, it doesn't even, I don't even know if I am affected by it anymore. 
I think a lot of that has to do with quality of product. Uh, as I said, being on the distribution side of very small scale that I am, um, I have different sources, of course, that I can go through. You know, I'll get different batches that come in and are are okay. There's some that are just I won't, you know, I won't even touch myself. That don't even whether I do interviews or smoke it, it doesn't even really affect me that much because the quality level has gone down so much because they don't have the the products that you need to to make methamphetamines readily available to, to anywhere in the world anymore. Really, you know, the the old school the the, the stuff. Back in the day, the crank, if you, what, what it used to be called. Crank is the crank, just for context, is the, the real pure stuff, the biker dope that they used to hide in the crankshaft of their motorcycle, as opposed to the shardy, less clear meth right. that's shards of ice, basically. They call it ice. It, you can't make that. You can't find that anymore. And there was, when I first started doing methamphetamines, the bikers used to run the meth here in the United States. You know, you, the motorcycle clubs, the jokers, the HAs. All those guys, the outlaws, they, they, they were the ones. They were making it. They were distrib- distributing it. Distributing it. Um, the cartel has since come in and taken over that realm. Well, six, seven years ago when I first started doing methamphetamines, the bikers were still kind of in the game. And there was two, you know, there was biker dope and there was cartel dope. And you wanted biker dope because biker dope was better than cartel dope. And it was, it was, a, different, it was a different formula that they used to, to, to make it. You know, all about the molecular, you know, it's all about the molecular structure of it. You'll lose me with a science-y word, but back to you. You describe yourself as a functioning addict, a functioning meth addict. When you look at your life, how do you see your addiction? Does it bog you down? Does it hurt you? Um, well, I mean, one thing I did learn when I got in trouble was, um, you know, I always, I always uh, justified my my drug use as I, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. That's not true because you are hurting people who care about you. Um, you know, when your your family watches you go through that, um, and you get in trouble, um, and you're in jail or you're in treatment, your your family is, is is worried about you. They they love you and they 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 don't want to see you go through this and um, since then, um, I've curved my lifestyle very much to where it was. I was wide, I was bald to the wall, wide open before I got in trouble. Meaning, like I was a cannabis grower, I was big, you know, big time. I was putting out forty pounds of, of high grade, you know, indoor cannabis every two months. I had a cycle go. I mean, I was, and I, I was proud of it, and I let everybody know it, and everybody, you know, and, and not only that, but but I was, I was also one hundred percent of my product. I was, I was distributing back to the East Coast, and I had a source back on the East Coast, so I was getting top dollar for it. I wasn't selling out here in the West, where it was, I was getting triple the amount back east. So all the product was going back east to a to a source, my source back there, and you know I was flying back east every two months and picking up fifty five, sixty thousand dollars in cash, bringing that back. I mean, I was doing all this, and it was, I was running the show. The guy, my business partner, was not really. Um, wasn't as well versed and you know, it, the way, the way that I, we ended up doing business together was I was running across country. I got caught in Kansas six years, seven years ago. I got caught in Kansas driving cross country and I had 25 pounds, which was a lighter load. I'd made about five trips prior to that up upwards of 80 pounds either each trip, 
but I got caught in Kansas by the Kansas State Patrol with 25 pounds of, of weed, of cannabis, and I drove away an hour and a half later. What? And I never heard another word about it again. Huh? Yeah. And I was in a $25,000 vehicle that was paid off that they could have taken from me. What happened? I, I was, it was 11.30 in the morning. Um, I was doing 72 in a, in a 70. You know, there's a Kansas State Patrol on the median. He uh, went by him. He came up behind me, pulled me over, said I hit the white line three times. Failure to maintain is what it is. And he asked to search the, the, car, the truck. I said no. He brought out the dog. Uh, you know, dog called the, the canine unit. Uh, of course, the dog reacted. Um, and he found that found the, the cannabis um, was taken down to the station. The current commander of the trooper station uh, was driven out by the former commander of the trooper station. Uh, they picked up my truck. We all drove back three vehicles. I'm in the trooper car. And then I talked to a DEA agent. He was actually a Kansas state employee that was deputized by the DEA. They asked me some questions, and um, an hour and a half later, um, I drove away without my without my cannabis, and uh, never heard another word again. It was obvious that that my cannabis was taken and was going to be sold by the Kansas State those those people, and you know profited. Um, you know, the only question that the trooper that pulled me over and drove me downtown. And the DEA agent, you know, that, inter- that interviewed me, the only question that was the same at two different times was how much you get in a pound for it. They were so doing market they were research. To figure out, you know, <laughs> how much they could get it for. You know, I get that. You know, these the troopers, they work 20, 30 years and they're not making that much money, but they see people like me um, all the time coming across country and they're in, you know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 trucks, trucks that they can't afford that these guys want. They want a piece, you know. They want a piece of the game too, and that's the way they get it. So, I mean, that was that was cannabis that I was brokering at that point. Meaning that I was I would go down to Mendocino County, California, and I would pick up like twenty pounds from a grower down there, pay him cash, I I and then I'd send it back east to my connection, and I double my money. I made a lot of money doing that, but that was that twenty five pounds I paid cash for. So. That was actually fifty thousand dollars right out of my pocket, right then and there. It was that that led to me going in with my with this guy, um, a business partner, and doing the indoor grow, going back in and growing. Growing being a producer is much safer than being the distributor, um, less profitable, but um, you know safer. It's just like anything in life, right? So that time you got off the hook, but you mentioned there was one time where you you really did get into a lot of trouble. Um, that's a, that's a, uh, that is a difficult story for me. I got involved with a much younger woman who was doing, you know, while I was doing my indoor grow, she, um, she had been a meth user since age like 13. Um, and you know, was using when I met her. Um, and I never got for the years prior to, you know, I'd only been doing that. I've been doing that about three or four years at this point, three years at this point. And I never had a girlfriend because I was like, eh, I know what's going to happen. I mean, I've heard it all. I've seen it all with the, you know, there's a, there's a domestic thing that happens. You know, the cops get called and, you know, 
all hell breaks fucking loose. You were worried about the classic drug-fueled relationship with all the paranoia and oh, shit. Oh, oh totally. <laughs> um, and that's exactly that's exactly what happened. Um, and so for years, I was like, I'm not having a. I, I wouldn't have a girlfriend. I had girls that I hung out with, but there was no emotional connection whatsoever. And I would not allow that. I would not allow myself to have that emotional connection because of the uh, many results that I had seen in the lifestyle. So, um, but that did happened. Um, I ended up being in a relationship with this, uh, woman and, um, it just led to, it all came to a fold. It was a situation where one morning, um, I woke up, we were in a hotel room and, um, she had been up all night. I had gone to sleep that night, which that didn't happen every single every single night, of course, with methamphetamine. And I woke up and she started accusing me of sneaking girls in the room. And I'm like, whoa, you know, this is in a this is this is in a, a one of one one way in one way a hotel room. And it just became turned into a huge argument. Somebody upstairs uh, from in a hotel room called the the police, and it just you know, police ended up showing up. I had uh, guns in the room, which I was legal to have, but it just didn't look good. I mean, I had like four pounds of marijuana, a bunch of methamphetamines and guns in a room with um, a woman and it just in cash. And uh, we, were, we were both arrested. I was looking at two years in prison and um, they uh, ended up being able to go to treatment. That's where I became clean for a year. And, um, I got three years probation, which I just got off last August. And, um, you know, now I'm, I'm also a felon too. And I, I kind of, I'd never been in trouble before one little incident when I was in high school. And, um, that's one thing that's the only aspect that I can really regret. Well, one aspect I really, really regret is that I'm now a felon and I can't go to Canada anymore. I can't, and there's a lot of things I can't do as, as a felon. And I, I, uh, I'm looking at ways to expunge that, of course, but you know that in itself, right there, um, was a big eye opener. I'd never been to jail before. I spent 30 days in jail right out, like right after being arrested, before I had to pay twelve thousand dollars to bail out, and then you know ten thousand dollars on an attorney. So all my savings and everything that I had was gone because I had to spend it all on that. And then, um, and then the next year after that was in and out of treatment and it was down to where I was living in my car. Um, I was living in a 1987 Toyota 4Runner two and a half years ago. And um, since then, I've been able to get back on my feet. A lot of that had to do with me getting clean as well. I worked hard to do that. So you got clean, but then what happened? What was the trigger that got you back into it? I don't know why I started using again. I think a lot of it has to do with with your the people you associate with. Um but it also has to do a lot with I it's what I've done my entire life. You know, I've always seems like there's always been substances involved in my life. And, um, yeah. So by the way, you mentioned you're working. What do you do for work? I'm a licensed contractor. Um, I focus, uh, on tree removal. You know, this time of year, I sell a lot of firewood. Um, I, um, I just bought a, Wood miser, uh, bandsaw mill, which is, uh, it's a portable bandsaw mill is what it is. I'm into, into slabbing, um, making, making my own lumber. I have a goal 
to, I've been saving up to, I want to buy a piece of land and build my own house uh, in the next couple of years. By the time I'm 50, that's what I want to be able to do is purchase a, you know, five, seven acres somewhere and plop a camper down on it and spend a few years just building the house myself, which I'm well-versed in every facet, every level of the, of the building process from pouring a foundation, digging out and pouring a foundation to putting in plumbing, to putting to wiring. I can, I can do all of that. So, so you're working, you're productive. It, it sounds like you're doing things that are fulfilling to you. Would you say that you live a happy life as an addict? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Um, you know, that's, I think about that every day, man. I mean, what's going to make, what's going to make me happy is the world to fucking open their eyes and to, you know, to see what's really going on. I used to be really pissed off at society and that's in the world in general. And that's how I, that's how I justified and rationalized my, my substance abuse before. Um, it's like that whole saying ignorance is bliss is kind of true. And I'm as happy as you can, as, as some, as somebody should be in the world, because if you're happy with what's, what's going on with the, you know, as George Carlin says, war, death, disease, destruction, filth, poverty, famine, corruption, and the ice capade. If this is the work of a Supreme being, I am not impressed. You know, I mean, it's like, look at what, look, look at what's going on in our world. You know, I mean, we're killing our world. We got, you know, these wars that we, people killing, killing each other all over to where, where the children being, being stolen and, and traded around. I mean, it's just like, what is going on? And, and people don't open their eyes and look to look around. It's like ignorance is bliss. You know, I, I, I think I would be in the same state of happiness that I'm at right now, whether I was using drugs or not. Plain and simple. Does that mean you don't really have a plan to ever curb the habit? Do you plan on using for the rest of your life? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, one thing I can say about my, my drug use long-term is I used to be really extroverted and I used to be really outgoing and very meet people and, you know, out at a bar, whatever. I used to be very extroverted. It has made me more introverted. Um, I don't go out and socialize nearly as much as I used to. I'm very recluse. I'm very, um, I don't let anybody new into my life. Um, I have very few friends, close friends especially. And that is one thing I will say about my, the long-term use. I don't know if that's, I don't know. Does that happen in, in, when, when we get older as a whole, you know? Well, I think that's a combination of things. One, the drugs are your escape and socializing is part of reality. Right. And you're trying to escape that reality. Yeah. I think I, I, I agree with you, uh, a lot on that. And, uh, I'm also, I, uh, I, I, like I said, I work a lot. I didn't even, I worked from eight o'clock last night till like four in the morning and I didn't use it at all in that time frame. I was just, doing my work that I needed to get done, you know, um, which I rent space in an industrial area where I store all my firewood and a lot of my tools and stuff like that. And what I was just splitting and stacking wood by myself till four o'clock in the morning. I didn't smoke anything. I didn't shoot anything. I mean, I did I smoked a couple of cigarettes. That was it the whole time. 
just because I needed to get it done because I knew the rains were coming in today really heavy, and I needed to get it done. And that's that's money for me right there. And I don't want to lose that money. I want to make money. So I'd rather do that. I'd rather sit there and work eight hours splitting and stacking wood than use drugs. I mean, I guess that's where that functionality is. And because of that functionality, I wouldn't say you're the typical meth addict. Not that there really is a typical meth addict, but as someone living with an addiction right now, what do you want to get out there to anyone listening? Um, you know, I was in Panama in the early nineties in the military. I was directly involved in the, in the war on drugs. It, it, it's proven, we've proven that it, it doesn't work going after the production doesn't solve anything. It's, it's just human nature. When you tell somebody they can't do it, they want to do it. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's where I think a lot of, uh, we, we can see a lot of change and we can see, um, a massive reduction, um, of crime, of aid, of addiction as a whole. Um, you gotta, you, you gotta give people's thought process to change and not look at it as a criminal problem, but as a health problem. Don't put them in prison, put them in treatment and don't ruin their lives because they got caught with an eight ball of cocaine and give them a felony. And now they can't be employed. Now they can't get in the, you know, apartment complexes won't rent to them because they got a, they're a felon. That's asinine. Yeah. And as you kind of touched on earlier, that disenfranchises people even more and gives them no choice, but to go back to the life they came from. Um, that's why I took this, this interview and why I responded to, um, uh, your post because that's, I thought maybe this could, you know, I know I'm not your everyday meth addict that, you know, you people wouldn't look at me and, and be like, Oh, he's a, he's a tweaker or whatever like that. And it, it is my way to be like, Hey, some, this is get the word out there that there is some other options available and we need to start taking a look at those options. And our, um, our world might be a little bit different of a place. And that's the whole reason I responded to your ad. And I, I appreciate you very much for doing this. Um, I, I got to get going. I got to get back to work. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so um, much. But um, yeah, I thank you. I thank you for your time, Nick. And I, I look forward to uh, listening to uh, everybody's story on your, on your podcast. So when thinking about functional addiction, I guess it kind of depends on your definition of the word functional. Does it mean the addiction just hasn't caught up to them yet? Or does it mean they're able to hide the severity of the addiction to those closest to them? Or does it mean you can have an addiction completely free of consequence? That's a question we might get the answer to on a different episode. Thanks for listening. Oh, and by the way, like, subscribe, download, all that stuff on the interwebs. Thanks. If you want to anonymously tell your story about addiction, find Addicts in the Dark on Instagram.